LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what journalist Jesse Hempel learned when her whole family came out. Jesse Hempel was born into a family of secret keepers. Her father, the son of a minister who'd gone to law school and then to work for a Fortune 500 company, was, unbeknownst to his wife and children, gay. Her mother, a tireless and sometimes erratic homemaker, had at one time been romantically linked to an alleged serial killer, a traumatic adolescent relationship she'd kept hidden from her family. They stuffed some aspects of themselves so deeply away, Jesse says of her parents, that they didn't understand they were hurting themselves, or for that matter, their children, modeling a kind of shame-faced distance that their kids learned to adopt. Jesse and her siblings became secret keepers too. Jesse hid that she was a lesbian, her sister concealed that she was bisexual, and her brother buried the truth that he was transgender. For decades, that's how the Hempel family got along, everyone keeping big things from everyone else. But then, in the span of a few years, everything changed. They all came out. The story of that family outing, to borrow the title of Jesse's recent memoir, is moving, heartbreaking, and ultimately hopeful. The way Jesse sees it, we all should consider coming out. Not about our sexuality, necessarily. For her, the idea of coming out is more expansive. We all have parts of ourselves, big or small, that we keep hidden from view. What would happen if we summoned the courage to share those parts with the people closest to us? What would it be like if we all lived the most authentic versions of ourselves? Jessie has written for Wired, Fortune, and Time. She's currently a senior editor-at-large at LinkedIn and host of the award-winning podcast, Hello Monday. She spoke with my colleague, Michael Kavnat, about family, memory, regret, and acceptance. Their conversation first appeared in a slightly different form on the show Michael hosts, The Next Big Idea Daily. You'll notice that they make a few references to Jesse's book bite. That's the 15-minute audio summary of the family outing she created for the Next Big Idea app. It contains the book's five big ideas, and you can listen to it by downloading our app in your app store. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear Michael's conversation with Jesse Hempel. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I've been ingesting your book over the last few days, really enjoying it and finding it much more applicable to my own life than I might have initially thought when I when I went to pick it up. But I wanted to just kind of first just get into a little bit of the backstory of this book. Was this a story that you'd been thinking about for quite a long time? Yeah, I, you know, just since birth or so. Um, <laughs> but truly, this memoir, it lived inside me for as far back as I could remember. It's worth here just taking a beat and thinking about how it is that I got to the the starting line for writing this book. Mm -hmm. In 2016, I was a writer at Wired, and I was 
writing at that point about the Pentagon and uh, the Secretary of Defense, uh, the late Ash Carter. And I was writing about Facebook a lot. I had just been all over the world looking at Facebook's internet efforts. And my brother called me and he told me two things. He told me, hey, I'm pregnant. At which point I panicked because my brother is transgender and he was carrying the baby. And I panicked not because I thought there was a problem with that. In fact, I was really excited for him, but because I was immediately scared about the way that the rest of the world would react to that. And then he got to the second thing. He said, you know, not only am I pregnant, but I'm thinking about working with a film crew out of L.A. to do a reality television show about my pregnancy. Oh, my God. I said, brother, that is a terrible idea. Do you know these people? What do you know about these people? Do you know media? Media can be scary. I work in media. You should really know these people. And then I said, you know, I work in media. So if you want to tell the story of your pregnancy, I mean, why don't you let me try to do it? Mm. And so we did. Uh, We pitched a story that became the most read story in time in 2016. It was the story of my brother's pregnancy. And writing that piece about my brother changed my life. It opened up a door to the idea that maybe I could write much more richly about my own personal experience of the world. And maybe I could tell stories about other people, people who existed outside of tech and outside of Silicon Valley. Fast forward a few years, right? It's um, early 2020. At this point, I'm working at LinkedIn. I'm hosting a podcast myself, Hello Monday. I'm a new mother. My wife has just had a baby. He's uh, at this point just a little bit more than a year old. And then in the flash of a second, everything I know about that identity is called into question Hmm. uh, with the onset of the pandemic. I'm living in a, frankly, a crap apartment, a bottom floor apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And suddenly we're home and on top of each other and we don't have childcare and I'm not Hmm. going into my office and I'm not even sure what's going to happen with my job. And not long into that period, we realized that things just felt too scary and we needed too much help. And we put the baby and the dog in the back of the Subaru and drove 18 hours south to Tupelo, Mississippi, where my in-laws lived. And suddenly I was still nominally employed for a tech company, but no longer a New Yorker and no longer somebody who went to work every day and no longer somebody who had a thriving social life. In effect, I didn't know who I was. Everything was up for review. I was mostly just depressed. Mm. And in this really quiet window of my life, the people that I ended up speaking to and speaking to almost every day were my family members. It was Mm. my brother and my sister and my mother and my father. And that was kind of weird because if you had known us growing up, you would never think that we would be a family that would end up being close or even on speaking terms. And I got lost in the question What happened to us that somehow over the course of our adulthood, we went from feeling very distant and frankly, very broken by the very notion of our family to feeling, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, feeling close. Mm -hmm. And I came to the thought that actually it has a lot to do with coming out. Coming out is something that all five of us did in one way or another. Before we came out, we were all people who were scared, tiny, and hiding. Mm -hmm. But the process of that work undertaken by each of us separately unlocked something. And the thing it unlocked allowed us to emerge as people who could know each other and ourselves. 
the thumbnail description of your book is that it's about a family where everyone came out and that's sort of surprising. But to me, I didn't experience it as any kind of textbook coming out story in a way. It was much more this sort of complicated set of individuals going through very specific life experiences. And the truth that emerges from that is hard to categorize, really. It's just it's just a bunch of interesting people working their stuff out together. You know, I appreciate you saying that. And I also really want to challenge anybody listening to take a more open view on what it means to come out. To come out, you know, has for a very long time now sort of reflected this idea of coming out of the closet, which involves coming out around our sexuality. But there are all kinds of ways that we come out. If you think about coming out as actually the process of confronting expectations that don't fit you, right? So, Michael, I think about how every person who is born into the world is born into a set of expectations, hopefully expectations that emerge out of love, right? There are Mm -hmm. what our parents want for us based on what they think about as what it means to live a good life. There's what our community wants for us. There's what our geography, our culture want for us. And then we're born in the world and we live for a while. And, you know, some cohort of people who they are turns out to be not so different from what those expectations for them are. But usually that's not the case. Usually as we live in the world, the most authentic expression of ourselves turns out to be pretty far from the expectations that are put upon us at birth, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a pretty small difference. Maybe you uh, were born into a family of baseball players, but you're actually a theater lover. And at some point, you finally- That's not such a small thing, actually. Yeah, well, that's yeah, true. that could be that could be uh, earth shattering. But go ahead. It can be right, and the work around having to decide whether you are going to fake it till you make it on the baseball field and miss that ball in right field for your entire entire childhood, or whether you're finally going to like muster the courage to say, "I, I really don't want to play baseball anymore, and I want to pursue these other interests." That, that can be a life, lifetime's work, right? So then you think about all the different ways in which we perhaps need to confront the expectations around us that don't fit and emerge as more authentic versions of ourselves. That is what the work of coming out is. And that's the territory that I really wanted to explore in this book. Like what happens when we just go for broke and live the most authentic yeah. versions of ourselves? I thought now we'd pivot to talking about the first of the big ideas that you presented to us. Memory is unreliable. And you tell this amazing story about this collective phone call you made to your parents, which is incredible that they don't remember it. I mean, you know, it's right. a, it, it's the sort of thing when you hear it, you're like, how could you not remember this? This seems like such a, a big deal. All the kids getting on the phone to tell mom and dad, you guys need a divorce, but somehow they don't remember it. And, and that's turns out to be quite interesting in and of itself and say something that I think you get at other points in the book too, that are that memory isn't this kind of shared agreed upon set of facts it is this very personal experience that can be hard to translate from one person to the next hard to agree upon and that's a that's a complicated point i mean to try to understand how much weight to give our own memories our own truth i mean clearly something did happen and and we experienced it and we want to honor that but then when you talk to someone else and you realize they had a very different take on it. That can be tricky to negotiate, right? I mean, did you find yourself stumbling 
with your family through like, you know, disagreements about, no, that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened. There were so many disagreements like that. And, you know, when I began this book, I naively thought that we all get along. I was going to use my journalistic skills to interview everybody about the past. I was going to try to make it all line up and tell a story that all five of us could agree. Yeah, it happened. And in fact, it happened that way. Um, And what I discovered, of course, and, um, you know, you may be laughing at me right now as I say this, but of course we could not make our memories lined up even when we all tried in like with our best intention to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, there were so many times when I would be insistent that I remembered that when we first got to France and I was seven years old, in April of 1982, my father had thrown me into a vat of grapes to smash them with the local kids (laughs) to make wine until my father finally said to me, I'm certain that that didn't happen because grape harvest is in August. Uh, Not in April. So it couldn't have happened. And I would search back in my mind and think, well, how could I have imprinted it so strongly that I can see it in my memory, that I can imagine it? I must be wrong about that. And that happens enough times. And you humbly realize that you're wrong about enough things. And it leaves you open to the idea that maybe you can at least acknowledge that you may not be right, right? You don't have to Mm -hmm. say I was wrong. You may just say, I I may not be right about a lot of the things that I remember. And and what does that do for you? The time that it came up the most in the book is the time that you were talking about, which is, you know, my parents have been in the thralls of, I won't call it a divorce. I'll call it an elongated separation for what felt like years. It was in fact three years. It Mm -hmm. didn't even just feel like years. And we, the three adult kids of these two people, we wanted them to get divorced already. It was a pain in our butt. (laughs) I was 26 at the time, which meant that Katya and Evan were 22 and 20. And we were just doing a heck of a lot of supporting them emotionally, listening to them, and also dealing with the discomfort of being in the gray area, which is just a very uncomfortable place to be. So we called them all up and said, look, we we need to get everyone together. We need to talk this through. And my brother and my sister and I scheduled a conference call. All three of us remember it. We remember where we were sitting. We remember what we were eating in some cases. They picked up the phone and we told them, hey, we are kids. We want you to get divorced. Mm -hmm. And as I remember it, they listened to us out. They said, thank you very much. And not long after that, they got divorced. All these years, I actually thought that that call was formative in their decision to divorce But when I spoke to them for the memoir and I interviewed them and I asked each of them separately about it, neither of them had any recollection of this conversation. That's amazing. In fact, my dad said it definitely didn't happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is amazing that, you know, our memories really consist of those events that have some sort of emotional valence for us, you know, that really register with us, which is not the same as the set of events that occurred. So it does make you think like, you know, how many of my memories are sort of distorted by my own agenda, my own intentions, and really don't square up with other people's memories, much less do they square up with, you know, what really happened? It's a, it's a slippery they question. They also change over time. Yes. Even if my memories are accurate in terms of events, I layer on my own meaning according to what's going on around me in the now, in the present, and what I'm looking to take from those events in the present. Yeah. I mean, you made me reflect on, I have had a few disputes over my life where just this, the other person, I couldn't agree on what had happened. And 
And my instinct is they're just wrong. Like I have this memory. I know that I'm right, but we couldn't get past it. And I wonder with this realization that memories are individual like this and they're mutable over time, does that change how you relate to people now? Does it does it give you a sort of different perspective on your present tense life in a way? Like what memories are you laying down right now and what's going to be wrong about them later? I think it introduces an opportunity for grace, right? Mm. And here we don't need to be right or wrong, right? Like your impulse, Michael, your impulse to say, well, ultimately, like you're just wrong because I know because my memory is telling me. Well, I don't think that we are called upon to issue an edict here to say, oh, no, Michael, actually, uh, your memory was wrong and that other person was right. But simply to introduce the opportunity for a little bit of gray area to say Mm -hmm. it's okay to be in the question about whether or not we can believe my memory. It's okay to simply say, okay, well, you know, this is this is how it's going, but it also could be another way. And when you introduce that grace, actually, everybody around you starts to seem a lot more compassionate. You start having better feelings towards everybody around you. Let's go ahead and talk about the second big idea, which you gave us, which is when someone tells you who they are, listen. Your brother, Evan, when he called to tell you to come out to you as trans, you didn't react in the way that you wish you had. That is an understatement. What do you think you did wrong in that moment? I think that whenever anybody is close to us and they reveal something about themselves that causes us to understand them differently, it's somewhat terrifying. And when I say terrifying, I mean existentially terrifying. Mm. Our first reaction is actually to try to take care of ourselves and we grow defensive. And so often, rather than open up to whatever they've shared, we try to shut it down. And so in the case when my brother came out, um, at that point, I was already out myself. I had been out for six years. I was a progressive person. At least I fancied myself to be. Mm I was very comfortable with the idea of someone being transgender. And my first response to Evan when he called me on the phone and said, next week when I come to your master's graduation, I would like to go by the name Evan, and I'm a boy. I said, oh, no, you're not, Evan. What are you talking about? Implying I know you better than you know yourself. Implying your truth is not as true as my truth, you know, my truth about you. And I wish, I wish I could go and take that back, right? Because that was coming out of my own fear that this person I knew so well wasn't who he said he was. And so what else wasn't true in my immediate small, like, sort of construct of identity? And if I had it to do over again, I would try my hand at doing what I figured out how to do finally during this whole project, the the memoir project, which is simply to say, tell me more about that. Yeah. Because if you react quickly, you're probably reacting out of your own fears or your own confusion, your own needs, which maybe in this moment do not need to be at the center of attention. Maybe this is the moment to really give space to your friend, your family member to speak their truth and not shut it down the way we instinctively maybe sometimes do just for conversational purposes. Like, well, I got to jump in here and say something. And the first thing that's coming to me is like, this can't be right. So that's what I'm going to say. 
It also speaks to identity and how identity is formed, and it's not formed mm-hmm. in a vacuum. We don't construct our identities and then go out into the world and bounce off other people. Layer upon layer of identity is constructed through the relationships we have with others. When someone is in close proximity to you and they shift some massive aspect of how you knew them, it leaves you standing on ground that suddenly feels shaky. You look up and you think, what else don't I understand about you and therefore about me? And uh-huh. I think we have to be honest with ourselves that that's a scary personal moment. And and it deserves to be. You get to have your process around that. Just please be mindful of the person you're having it with and make sure it's not your family member or your friend, at least yeah. not at first. But I think this comes up in smaller ways too. Like it doesn't have to be this massive identity thing. I think about this as a parent sometimes when your kid says something like, I'm tired or I'm hungry. Sometimes you have an instinct to say like, well, that can't be right. You just ate or you know, you can't be tired. You, you know, you just had a nap. And in this small way, you've just denied the reality of what they're saying. Um, and I think that can be really destructive, you know, over time, you know, if, if kids start to feel like their truth isn't being heard or acknowledged, you know, and you can do it with friends, you can do it with, um, strangers really. Like if you're kind of shutting people down habitually, that's going to have an impact on them, their own development. And that can be really crippling over time, I would think. I think that's the reason why a lot of people, uh, when they first come out, um, certainly a lot of people when they first come out about their sexuality, tend to do it to someone who's low stakes, right? Like a stranger Mm. or somebody they don't even know. Like test it out first and see how it lands. Right, because the reaction of a loved one could be devastating if it's not the right reaction. I'm also wondering, you're open about the fact that you regret your response to Evan. I was wondering if there's any way you can repair that after the fact, either in the specific case with Evan or just more generally, if you've put your foot in it and you've said the wrong thing in a moment, how do you build back the kind of trust that you want to have with your the person you're close to? Ultimately, the family outing as a memoir is a story about pragmatically how you go about the process of repair. Mm-hmm. And repair is so critical and possible. And it begins by acknowledging what is hurt, right? It begins when we, the person who has done something that has been hurtful, um, take the time to explore exactly what hurt. And then once you've gotten clear about that, you ask for forgiveness and you ask, how can I make this right? I like to think that I've done both of those things around that event specifically with my brother. I mean, I'm sure just you're acknowledging that you did it wrong the first time goes a long way towards the repair, just, you know, being humble about that, saying that you're going to strive to do better. And I think you can build back trust and relationships if you're intentional about it and hopefully catch it fairly early. So this isn't decades later that you're having to do this work. Yeah, but you can also do it decades later. I mean, that's something that I... I learned like, and that first part is actually the part that you will spend the longest in. I, I think most of us never understand the ways in which we've hurt the people we're closest to because we never make the space for the conversations in the first place. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Your next big idea is to center other people's experiences. I was really struck by the section in which you wrestle with the question of how to refer to your trans brother when you're talking in the past tense about your childhood. He, Evan, said, well, call me Evan. That's my name. And I'm a he and I'm your brother. And you wanted to honor that, I think, legitimately. But you also wanted to honor your own memory and experience of having a sister with a different name and to tell the story with those pronouns and that name was something you had to work at, I think, a little bit. But then you came to like a really cool place with it. Can you tell me how that worked out for you? Yeah, that was very confusing. And I think anybody who has been the parent or sibling of a trans person might relate to this. I love and accept my brother for who he is, I would tell you. But then when it came time to try to write about who he was, you know, fully 50% of my book happens when he had not yet made the transition. Mm -hmm. And so were you, as any old person, to stumble upon him during that part of his life, you would have known him by a different name and by a different gender. And so when I was first trying to figure out what to do about this in terms of writing, I called him up and I was like, Evan, what do I do about this? so confusing to me. I, I understand that you're telling me that you are my brother. And also, I'm the narrator, and I remember you as my little sister. And he said, well, this isn't confusing. I'm telling you who I am. Just write about me as who I am. And I, and I stopped short. I was like, I don't, I don't get it. Like, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm telling you who I am. Write about, write everything you're writing. Write about me honestly, but center my experience. Hmm. You know, I, I'm asking you to portray me as who I am. I am your brother. I am Evan. And I didn't really understand it, Michael. And I hung up the phone and scratched mm -hmm. my head and thought, well, I've got a year and a half before I have to turn this thing in. I'll, I'll at least try it that way. And so I wrote the same stories I was going to write and include. And when I wrote about them, I gendered my brother, he, and I used the name that he gave himself. And as I did that, I began to understand and know my brother for the first time in ways that I really hadn't mm. before. And what I take from that, Michael, is this idea that when you center other people's experience truly, and when you make an effort to do that, you can see them more richly and understand them better. And it's not as complicated as it sounds. This idea of centering other people's experience, obviously, great advice for writers and a great way for you to go back in time and connect with your family of origin. But I wonder if you're able to use this in any way with your current family. You have a, a wife and two two little kids. Is that right? I think a lot about that because I know inevitably that when you ask them this question in years to come, they will all tell you that I have failed them in mm -hmm. any number of ways. Inevitably. Inevitably, because that's how life works. And yet the aspiration is entirely worthy. Um, yeah, I think about that all the time. 
at this point, they are so young. Again, yeah, my son is four, my daughter is one, Mm -hmm. that it almost doesn't quite apply to center myself in my four-year-old's experience usually Mm -hmm. leaves me grumpy and hungry and (laughs) focused on the lollipop that I wouldn't give him. (laughs) Um, But it really does apply when it comes to my relationship with my wife. Um, Mm -hmm. I would tell you, and I hope that she would tell you that I think we have a very strong marriage and it has taken a lot of work for that marriage Mm -hmm. to be so strong. And a lot of that work has come from therapy. We did several years of great therapy, not when we were in crisis, but when we were in that moment where we were trying to decide whether this was a relationship that was going to carry us through life. Mm. And the point and the goal of the therapy was to help us learn how to listen well to each other and to learn where we were different and what we needed. In other words, for each of us to learn to center the other person's experience. Wow. Good advice. I'm going to have to try that. (laughs) Let's talk about your next big idea, which is show up kind of a simple idea in a way. And well, I'll just share, first of all, this, this resonated with me because it's something that I've had to learn. Um, and, you know, one of my nagging regrets is I had this friend who was sick in London and I wanted to go visit her, but I let the price of the plane ticket kind of delay me. And I kept trying to find a way to get my work to cover the flight because, you know, I could possibly get some work in London. And and I spent, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks trying to kind of finagle it. During that time, she passed away. And uh, it was it was a real gut punch. And I, I, I hadn't realized how close to, to passing away she was. And this remains one of my biggest regrets and something that I've had to process. And I've really tried to take this lesson of like, not letting the price of a plane ticket stop me from being there for someone. But sometimes it takes a while to, to get there. And I think that is, a, it's part of maturing, right? Because when you're, when you're immature, you, you can, it's hard to look past your own needs and your own uh, limitations. And, and, you know, and frankly, you might not have the resources to show up as much as you would like. But I think with, with time and with going through some of the processes like you have with your family, like you realize the simple value of just your presence and just being with people you know, you don't have to be do it perfectly. You don't have to kind of, you know, make everything work out for them, but just showing up is a pretty powerful thing to do. That story you tell resonates, Michael. I think we all have some story like that in our life. Um, the person we didn't get to say goodbye to, the, you know, the way that we weren't able to be present in a way we might've liked to. And, um, and yeah, we, had a a similar story like that that I shared in the book about um, my mother discovering that her sister had died. This was a sister that at that point in our family, we did not get along well with. My mother was not somebody at that point in my life I got along well with. It was going to be expensive to get there. It was going to cost $500, which Michael, the 30-year-old version of me, did not have definitively. Um, I would have to miss work. And My stepfather, Ron, who was sick himself and older and just wise beyond his years, he said, no, you just show up at your mom. You sit by your mother at her sister's funeral. This is not a a debate about whether you should do. You you just do that. 
And I did that, and I've never regretted that. And in fact, in our family, it's become a bit of a mantra. Like, what should I do here? Well, you sit next to your mother at her sister's funeral, so I guess Mm -hmm. I'll go do that thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it applies more broadly to, like, anytime something uncomfortable happens and we're faced with the question of how do I react? Do I take a step forward or do I take a step backward? I'll give you an example from work. Um, A colleague of mine had a devastating loss, a personal loss, um, and she'd lost a child. And uh, around that time, I was talking to another colleague who was like, ah, I just, it's so awful what happened to her. I just, I just am leaving her alone. And I think that life experience has told me that we are always caught in that question, like, do I say something Or do I back off because I don't know the thing to say and it could be the wrong thing? And what Mm -hmm. if I just make everything worse, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that in life, you always say something. Even if you put your foot in your mouth, maybe there will be a moment in the future when you regret it, but probably not. Mm -hmm. But should you not say something, there will almost certainly be a moment in the future when you regret it. Moreover, when you say something, in that case, when, and I counseled the colleague, like drop her an email and tell her you're sorry. Yeah. Um, that's all. It doesn't have to be big. It's it's a version of showing up. Just show up and show up for everybody you know in life because life is really short. I've learned this also around people who are grieving. Like when someone has died and I wonder, well, should I reach out to the family and say, you know, give my condolences? Oh, they probably don't want to hear from me right now. They're, you know, they're not taking phone calls. They're not reading their emails. It'll just like... Yeah rub salt in their wound I should shut up but I've had to learn the lesson like I think it's good to say something something simple something small keep it short but you know hopefully that's the right answer most of the time Hi I'm Tomer Korn LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer on my podcast Building One we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Let's talk about your last big idea, which is put your own life jacket on first. Now... At first glance, this seems almost to be in contradiction with some of your other ideas because you've mostly been telling us, listen to other people, center their experience. And this is a moment where you're saying, yeah, but look after yourself. You know, you're, you, <laughs> you can't just all be about empathy and centering other people all the time, uh, that there's something really important about 
protecting your own boundaries, protecting some, you know, having some integrity around your own needs. Tell me how that's played out for you in your family story, that how, how you've been able to maintain yourself at the same time trying to empathize and connect and be there for your family members. I think more about what it means to put on your own life jacket first as if you want to do the work of being close to others, you have to remember that your first best friend is yourself. And yes, that sounds a bit cheesy, but stop and think about it. Unless we're doing the great care involved in deeply understanding ourselves and being compassionate for ourselves and treating ourselves with respect and dignity and all the generosity that we would our closest, dearest friend in the world, we simply won't be capable of extending those traits to others. And in fact, it is the self-acceptance, the radical self-acceptance that serves as a jumping off point for us to even be able to mm-hmm. open up to the idea of truly centering another person's experience. Mm-hmm. So you had to do a fair amount of work on yourself before you could really take in your family members' life stories, probably. That's another way of saying that I needed all nine years of therapy (laughs) um, in order to get from where I started in my 20s, still really working on the first aspects of coming out and very angry at every single person in my family to where I ended up, you know, in the back half of my 30s in a place where I felt like I had emerged into the adult that I loved and cherished and respected, Mm. and that I had the energy to invest in figuring out how to be in relationship with everybody else. You know, sometimes this does involve drawing some tough boundaries. I mean, in your call with your parents, where you were telling them, encouraging them to get divorced, I think what you came to realize is that what you were all, all the kids were doing was, was saying, this is, this is not working for us. You know, on the one hand, maybe one memory of it is that we were encouraging them to do what would be right for them. But on reflection, I think you were realized that you were all speaking from your own needs and like, we can't handle this. This is not good for us. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, you do have that right. And I, I think that this is also, this speaks to who we are in the moments when people around us are having a particularly tough time. Mm-hmm. There are lots of moments in our lives when the people around us, our close family members perhaps are alcoholic or struggling with a drug addiction issue or like my parents going through a really awful divorce when they're really not being their best selves to each other or to the rest of us. And in those moments, sometimes the very best thing you can do is take care of yourself enough and set enough boundaries with them that when and as they find their independent way to healing, you're not so angry at them and broken by them that you can't figure out how to make room to be close to them again. Mm. And so in the moments when my parents were in just the worst period of their splitting up, like what we were trying to do on that phone call with them was ultimately to set some boundaries Mm -hmm. to say, here are the things that you can talk to us about and here are the things that you can't and you got to go handle this stuff Mm -hmm. and back off and leave us alone. Mm -hmm. And that was us taking care of ourselves, right? And us taking care of ourselves is what then allowed us to allow them back into our lives in a productive way again in the future. Mm. Has this come up more recently too? Because now, especially having written this book, I get the impression you're all 
you're all a little bit in each other's business. You, you all seem oh, pretty yeah, we are. connected. We are. So do you And by so- the way, it's not like we're, we get along any better than anybody else's family, really. I mean, it's uh, not all tea and roses over here. Um, but it's really respectful. And at the end of the day, we all know that we're all going to opt in and we all trust that completely. And that goes a long way when there's conflict, right? But yeah, the boundaries thing is huge. And boundaries have taken us a lifetime to get right. And they're still, you know, still shifting. It's another thing I, I sometimes think about, again, with child rearing, that, um, you know, this this idea of setting your own boundaries so that it's like when you're when you're disciplining a kid, for example, there's a difference between saying like, you shouldn't do that, you're bad, that's wrong, and saying like, this isn't, I can't handle this. This is, this is not working for me. I, I have a need for quiet right now, or I have, you know, in my house, I want us to treat each other with respect or something. You're just trying to like bring it back to like, you know, you, you've got your own life going on. I'm not denying you're having the experience you're having right now, but I have to speak my reality, which is like, this is not a good situation for me. Well, and think about what that does in terms of a, a sort of a relationship, any relationship, a relationship with somebody at work, in our family. It basically takes all the blame off, right? It yeah. depersonalizes it. And when you take responsibility for what you need in the world and you lay down the framework to live in that need, um, then it's up to somebody else what they're going to do about that and how they're going to react to it. And that ultimately is it sets you up for a much more productive relationship with them. And ultimately, it allows somebody else to know what to expect from you, which allows somebody else to, to opt in better, I think. Jesse, is there anything you think that I should touch on before we wrap up? No, I just, Michael, I'm really impressed by you as an interviewer. You're a very elegant interviewer. And I realized that this book is shoving a square peg in a round hole, except it's more mm. like an octagonal peg in which the sides aren't even. And I just really appreciate it. it. It wasn't an obvious fit, but I sort of had an instinct around the book and looking at your book bites, the insights that you sent us, that even though it wasn't one of these sort of actionable life advice books that we tend to focus on that it, all that stuff was in there and you surface it in your in your key ideas for us so that you, you did the the heavy lifting for us to figure out how to make it useful for our listeners which i hope it is well thank you and i hope our listeners read this book because it's a great read you have a great voice as a writer and your family is just really damn interesting <laughs> thank you That was Jesse Hempel, author of The Family Outing, speaking with my colleague, Michael Kavnat. If you'd like to hear more from Jesse, check out her podcast, Hello Monday, which like our show is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And if you'd like to hear more from Michael, follow The Next Big Idea Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to start the day, a mini masterclass you can enjoy with your morning cup of coffee. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.